I know James, or excuse me, Jake has been a busy man uh, this morning with song leading and then uh, the special number and appreciate his ministry this morning. James chapter number one, James chapter number one, we have begun working our way through this epistle as James, the half-brother of Jesus, we know that Mary had other children, um, Jesus, of course, virgin-born, virgin-conceived, virgin-born, would not be a biological sibling to James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Got saved later in life. He got saved post-resurrection, having rejected Jesus earlier in his life, and later, post-resurrection, trusting Christ as his Savior and being used greatly of the Lord in leadership in the early church. We know from Acts 15... He was greatly involved in the early church and helping with a debate about how to transition the Gentiles into the church. And then we see his burden here in this great epistle. We started off a few weeks ago looking at the first few verses, James, a servant of God. And we see here, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And we, we know that these 12 tribes, he's referring to the Jews, having been dispersed, quite possibly as a result of a few different persecutions, Herod Agrippa, maybe even under Saul, who later was saved and became Paul. We know that there was some racial discrimination also that was involved here, as the, the Jews were disliked by uh, groups of Romans or Roman leaders. So many Jews had fled from Palestine, from Jerusalem, and were scattered abroad. And some of them they left with very little, maybe just the clothes on their back, and had no doubt been through some trials, through some suffering. And so James immediately addresses this topic of suffering, of trials. And we spent a couple of Sundays looking at counting it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, verse number 2. And the purpose of those trials is to mature us and to equip us, to strengthen our faith, strengthen our faith and to focus our trust more fully and completely in the Lord. And we talked about how this suffering, these trials, these temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, this aspect of endurance. God wants to mature us. He wants us to be fully Equipped, fully furnished unto all good works. And we know that trials, they come in various shapes and sizes and different types. We have looked here in diverse temptations, varieties of trials. And there's everything from physical to financial to emotional to circumstances. All kinds of different difficulties that come. And they all... In the plan of God, as we trust Him, as we ask for wisdom, God wants to use that trial in our life to make us more like Him, to increase our faith. But sometimes trials come in the form of temptation to sin. We have focused primarily on suffering and trials, tribulations, temptations that are not necessarily a temptation to sin, but every trial... Every tribulation, every difficult circumstance, any form of suffering can bring with it a temptation to distrust God, 
to look to other things, to look to oneself, to try to cope with that trial, cope with that suffering in some wrong or sinful way. That is one of the reasons that we, in the Lord's Prayer, read, lead us not into temptation. God does not want our trials, our tribulations, our suffering to turn into temptations to sin to turn away from the Lord, to take our eyes off the Lord. No, he wants us to ask him for wisdom, to learn through our trials, to become more patient, to endure, to become more Christ-like. But if we don't allow the trial to strengthen our faith, to purify our hearts, and to produce endurance, then the tendency is to what? It's to become bitter. It's to become angry. It's even a temptation to become unfaithful, to blame God and to no longer serve Him faithfully and drop out of church and begin to seek worldly ways and become disobedient. But God doesn't want us to respond to our trials, to our temptations in that way. So if we're not careful, if we're not careful, the testings on the outside will become temptations on the inside. Abraham was in the land of promise, had followed God in obedience out of the land of Ur and come into the land of Canaan, the land of promise there in Palestine. But we know that there was a lapse in Abraham's faith as he left Canaan and went to Egypt and lied about Sarah being his sister. We know that that was not a full truth. It was a partial truth and it was a lie. God chastened him in order to bring him back to a place of obedience. What about Israel? The children of Israel traveling through the wilderness, having been delivered from Egypt, they began to complain when they didn't have water or didn't have meats, and they began to accuse God of unfaithfulness. And God would sometimes bring plagues and judgments, and yet he would still provide for them water, manna, even quail meat, but they were tempted to complain, and in some cases they became disrespectful, and they became unfaithful, and God had to chasten them, and there were times where there were many who died as a result of their complaining, as a result of their accusing God of being unfaithful and unholy, so there's temptations and trials and suffering to become bitter, to become angry at God, to turn away from the Lord. But there are temptations that just come as a result of natural desires. Appeals that the world, the flesh, the devil presents. And we come to, in chapter 1, to verse 13 of James chapter number 1. And we read here, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. So we see, first of all, that God is above temptation to sin. God is not tempted to sin. We don't understand what that's like. We have temptations everywhere. We're tempted even right now to turn off the boring preacher and to fall asleep or to think about what we're going to eat for lunch, to not bring attention to God's word. I've been guilty of it. I was wondering when the Colts game was going to start or one of my other losing teams that never seems to win any, anything lately. And you know how it is. We get drawn away and tempted. And next thing you know, we haven't heard anything that God has for us from his word. 
And sometimes we're even falling asleep or we're now with devices. Now with devices, we can be surfing the net. We can be in a thousand other pages of the internet instead of where God wants us. But God is above temptation to sin. He cannot be tempted to sin. Now Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter number 4. But like a diamond must be tested to prove it is a diamond, Jesus was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He could not sin. Through that temptation, he became a faithful high priest who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Hebrews 4, in verse 15, puts it this way, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He showed us how to endure trials and to defeat temptation. He is the greatest example. Matthew 4, and we don't have time to go to that passage, but in each case, there's a temptation from Satan. And we know that that temptation, he was taken out into the wilderness, led by the Lord in the wilderness, and that temptation was not just those three specific statements by Satan, but there was a 40-day period of testing there. We know those specific statements by Satan, we could divide those up into categories of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Christ answered each temptation with the word of God, including that great truth, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So we see that God cannot be tempted to sin. He is above temptation. But also, secondly, in this verse, we see that God does not tempt us to sin. Again, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God allows trials and sufferings in our lives. He'll even bring chastening, but temptation to sin is a result of our own flesh, our own sin nature. There's obviously temptations that come from the world, and then, of course, the devil himself, who has a roaring lion, seeketh about whom he may devour. And he has wiles, he has tricks, he has schemes. He uses the world. He uses our flesh. We must remember, though, that also it is not a sin to be tempted I believe it was Martin Luther who said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair, if you have any. I would have a little bit more trouble with that. But I could still keep them from making a nest in whatever I have left up there. But the point is, the point is that we are tempted. We're tempted in lots of different ways, from lots of different angles. The flesh, the world, the devil... Our sources, but we understand that temptation comes in so many different forms, in so many different ways, and it's a daily battle. Thus, the title of this message the battle with temptation. We are a tempted people. We understand that fight. As a believer, as a believer, we understand that battle in the Romans 7 context. As Paul wrote, the things that I want to do, I don't do. He, he talks about that internal struggle with the flesh. 
though the penalty of sin has been paid for, though the power of sin has been broken, the flesh, yes, is dead, as Romans says, but it still has influence. As a putrid corpse, it has a stench on our lives, and we give in way too much, and we understand the temptations. But it is not a sin to be tempted. But how do we handle temptation? Now, I know that some will go to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and they will try to use 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21.1 and try to accuse God and the Bible of having a contradiction. But we understand that in 2 Samuel 24, that David numbered the people against the will of God. It was David's sin, his pride. He took a census, he went out and numbered the people. Even Joab, as carnal of a man as Joab was, uh, Joab himself being a murderer, a schemer, but Joab was David's five-star general, so to speak, commander of the army, and even he said, wait a minute, David, you, you shouldn't be doing this. But in 1 Chronicles 21.1, we understand that, as we read there, that it was Satan who appealed to David's pride. David was lifted up in pride. Satan then appealed to David's pride. And then we understand 2 Samuel 24 in the context of 1 Chronicles 21.1. And it helps us understand that it's David's pride, Satan's instigation, that then God permitted David to... Sin, to act out in his pride in such a way that he numbered the people and then there was a plague that came and David was chastened and God was even using that chastening and doing some purging and some pruning and dealing with David and some of the sins of Israel. So God was overruling and overcoming and he was using, but God did not tempt David to sin. It was David's pride, his flesh, instigated by Satan there, when we understand the two passages and interpret Scripture by Scripture. Because we are sinners by nature, we have this propensity to sin. The default nature of our hearts is to sin. Again, the depravity of man, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We didn't have to teach our kids or our grandkids to lie, to cheat, to disrespect, to disobey. We don't take our, our infant, our toddler, and say, okay, now, when mom and dad say do this or do that, you say no, okay? Let's practice no. Where does that come from? They already think those wrong thoughts. They already are naturally predisposed to tell mom and dad no, to disobey, to lie, to cheat. I've given this illustration before, but Kelly taught preschool for many years, and there was a particular four-year-old that got in trouble, and the mom, as Kelly wrote home the note and said, your child lied, and this is the punishment, this is what we did. The mother said, I don't even think that she knows how to lie. She's only four years old. We thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a long school year. <laughs> a four-year-old doesn't know how to lie. We know that the Bible says that we come out of our mother's womb lying. 
There's a propensity to sin because of our sin nature. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And God wants us to be victorious in the battle against temptation. He doesn't want us to be defeated. He gave us the whole armor of God. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the power of Him. We know that God has given us and revealed to us His glory and His virtue through His Word. We have the ability with God by His grace and through His mercy as we depend upon Him, as we trust Him, as we ask Him for wisdom. And not be a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. As we look to him who gives good and perfect gifts, we can have victory over temptation. You know, many times temptation comes from trying to accomplish a good thing in the wrong way. Is it a good thing to want to pass a test or a quiz or to do your homework? Is it a good thing? Reminder to the students out here, it is a good thing to do your homework. It is a good thing to pass tests and quizzes. (laughs) Is that a good thing? Yes, of course it is. But that desire to do well, to pass a test, a quiz, to do my homework, can be done the wrong way. If there is cheating involved, a good thing is accomplished, if a good thing is attempted to be accomplished in a wrong way, then it becomes sinful. Cheating is an attempt to accomplish a good thing, but in the wrong way, out of the will of God. Not according to God's commands, God's order, God's design, God's principles. What about a need for money? Sure, we all need money. We, we all have bills to pay and expenses, and we have needs for food to be put on the table, clothes, etc. We need money, but stealing? Would that be the right way to go about getting a need met? There are some in the culture today that would excuse, well, they're, they're poor, or they're in a bad home environment, or whatever the excuse may be. They, they, it's not sin, because they had a, a greater need. They were poor, they were in some sort of bad situation, and, and so they had to steal. We hear that nowadays. Some of these uh, attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, and the way laws and policies are written or not enforced, and now we have even these, what do they call them, crash and grab or dash and grab or grab, and I forget, and they go in, and sometimes it's whole groups of Young people going in and smashing windows and breaking open jewelry cases and stealing. And you hear people say, well, they, they, they must have needed that $75 pair of jeans with holes in it. You know, they must have needed that coach purse. They must have really needed that jewelry. You know, and they'll make excuses for that sin. Obviously, a need for money, even for food, if it's taken by stealing, that would be sinful. A right desire but a wrong method, a sinful method for taking that. What about in moral issues? We can talk about the, the, the purity and the, the proper use of the gift of sex. But is that not, in our culture today, that right desire in God's boundaries of marriage, 
when it is taken outside of God's design, God's boundaries within marriage, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So a right desire outside of God's design and God's order becomes sinful. We can go on and on with examples. But we see here in James 1, in verse number 14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So we see here in this passage, we're going to look at three considerations as we work our way through this passage in dealing with temptation. First of all, we must consider the consequences of acting upon our desires. We must consider the consequences. We must consider God's judgment. We must consider the long-term effects. We must consider the fruits. What will we reap if we sow this seed? Many of you are farmers and gardeners or have had an upbringing in that. And you understand that when you put down corn, you expect to go back to that field and to get corn. You don't put down corn and come back and say, where are the soybeans? That's silly. Well, when we plant seeds of sin and lust, we're going to reap that. Do we think about the consequences of our actions? Do we look long term? Do we see our sin the way God sees it? James 1 and verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That word lust, I know it often has a negative connotation. And in context, many times it does. But understanding in its basic use, lust is simply desire. We've already given some examples of natural or God-given desires, but when they are not acted upon in God's way, according to God's will, if they're outside of God's order and design and boundaries, they become sinful. Well, here there is this desire that is actually a temptation to sin. There is a drawing away. It is a good desire that now has become illicit. It is outside of God's design and plan and order. It is like fire that is taken out of the fireplace and begins to burn the house, the curtains, or is out of control in some forest and has started some wildfire. And we know the Results of wildfires, even recently in the news with what has happened over in Hawaii. Fire is proper and good and effective when it's in its right place, in the fireplace, under control. On a candle, we, most of us, have probably lit a candle on a birthday cake and allowed our little one to blow out that. Well, in its proper place, that fire is effective and it can light, it can be fun. We have a fire pit in our backyard, and I was a pyromaniac growing up, and I have also passed down that heritage of pyromania to a couple of my children. Uh, Fire in its proper place, in its boundaries contained, can be a source of light, of heat, can be very useful. Some of you have wood stoves, and you are already planning, already preparing for this winter, which I hope is very mild. But uh, it may be that you are already starting to collect firewood and beginning to chop for your wood stove in its proper place. That wood stove, that fire in that wood stove is going to provide heat and light. Some of you are going to save a lot on your utility bills because of that effective use of fire. Well, desire, out of control, out of its proper boundaries, desire becomes a lust, 
a desire that is covetous, that is selfish, that is outside of God's design and God's order. And the phrase that James uses is drawn away. This desire now has temptation in the form of a drawing away. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. His desire has now gotten out of control. It's gotten out of its boundaries. It's being drawn to that which God forbids. That which God says no or not right now or not that way. And that phrase drawn away has to do with a lure. It's a hunting or a fishing term. Baiting a trap, baiting a hook. I'm not much of a hunter or a fisherman. Some of you, you're already counting down the days to bow season or firearm season or you're out on the lake, the pond, out at the creek and you're fishing and you have maybe hundreds of dollars invested in lures if you're a fisherman and I don't understand how it all works in hunting. Maybe you put on some sort of deer scent or something. I don't know. I don't know how that works, but something. I know that my sister, I know my sister is, she's 10 times the hunter that I am. But anyway, I've been out with her hunting and I didn't particularly enjoy it. I did it for a couple of years and then I, I, I didn't really enjoy it. So I haven't done it since. But there, there was a method, there was a way in which that she would go after the deer. Fishing, lures, we're drawn away. Satan has lures. He has bait. We know what that bait is in our lives. Some things don't appeal to us at all. We have a sin nature. So all of us have that propensity to sin, that sin nature. We've talked about that already. But we all know that there are certain besetting sins. Hebrews talks about sins and weights that so easily beset us. We talked about in the Sunday School Hour, the Achilles heel. Aaron Rodgers this week with Monday Night Football and Torres Achilles. That term Achilles heel is because of a Greek mythology where the only weakness was where in the Greek myth, I believe it was the mom would dip the son in the water or the liquid or whatever. I forget how the whole myth worked. But that was the only point of weakness on that Greek god. And that's where we get Achilles heel from. And we know the Achilles heel. We know the chink in our armor. Satan knows it. We know where our desires are drawn away, lured, baited, where the hook is baited in our life. And are we careful there to avoid that place of temptation? You know, it used to be, I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting older. I, I, joke, I joke around, my kids joke around with me and, and I joked around a little bit this morning. Uh, my kids think that I came off the, the ark with Noah and I was there when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. I'm really not that old, but I'm old enough to remember some of the things that were in our culture that you had to go out of your way to involve, to engage yourself in those sins. Now they are on our phones. They are on the click of a remote. And in many cases... Even among those who profess to be believers, they're not even classified as sins anymore. And they are still temptations because the devil knows our flesh. The world knows our flesh. The lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are there. 
And there is a bait, there is a lure. We're drawn away. What draws us away? What is the bait? What is the lure that particularly causes us to have that illicit desire to be drawn away by the Lord or by by the flesh, by Satan himself, by a lust, an evil desire? What is it that we must identify in our lives? What is it that we must be wary of, that we must be discerning of? And you know what? Let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Sometimes we say, well, that will never affect me. That will never bother me. Oh, I can do that. I'm a strong Christian. I'm a really mature believer. That won't affect me. How many times have people said that? And that was the very lure, the very bait that Satan used, that the flesh and the world used to draw us away in our pride. Lifted up in pride, saying, oh, that won't affect me. Oh, that can't possibly be a temptation for me. And it's the very thing that has the hook in it that draws us away, that catches us. Drawn away of our own lust. And then notice, enticed. Enticed. This word enticed has to do with the deceptive nature of the illicit desire. It's the idea of maybe an addiction, an overpowering. It has to do with the deceptive aspect of that temptation, that lure, that bait, that we have now been controlled by that temptation, by that lust, by that desire, to the point that we're not even thinking straight. We're not even thinking biblically about that. We have now dismissed what God has said. We've dismissed God's word. We've even maybe dismissed what the authorities in our life have told us about that sin and have warned us. And now we are saying, hmm, this is good for me. I can do this. How can I do this? How can I get away with it? And as a matter of fact, I know that even if I do get caught, here's my way out or here's the way I can assuage the consequences. This is that overcoming deception that overpowers the mind and the emotions and now begins to control the will. And without getting, again, my, my point isn't to become political here, but as our culture pushes God and his word and God's standards out and celebrate sin, and promote sin, and offer sin, and says, we will pay for your sin. Come to our state, and we will engage in this sin, and we will pay for it. We'll help you engage in this sin, and we'll pay for it. What is the authority that's supposed to punish evil and promote the good? What is that authority, that government structure that is now Outside of God's order and God's will, now that government structure is participating in the deception, in the drawing, the enticing. Can I bring it home a little bit further? What about in our homes? When we put the temptation in front of our kids and we say, don't, don't do what, you know, I, I can't remember how it's said. I'm not saying it right. Do what I say and not what I do. And we become hypocrites in the home. And we lay the temptation out in front of our kids. We live a life that is ungodly. And we say, but I'm going to take you to church. 
I want you to memorize those Bible verses. I want you to obey the coach, but I don't obey my boss. I want you to obey the teacher, but I don't obey the authorities in my life. What if, what if would we bring that, in, that drawing away and that enticing into our own home? And we don't have standards when it comes to entertainment and on and on we could go. And my point isn't to get into the nitty gritty of our lives and to be an authoritarian pastor and to be a legalist. I get called that sometimes and we get called that sometimes because we make application with the word. I don't want that to be a, a wrong accusation, but we have to make application with the principles, the commands, the truths of God's word. And sometimes we are guilty of laying the bait, the lure in our own homes. And the temptations are presented and then our children who don't have the discernment because maybe we haven't exercised discernment. They're drawn away. There's a lure, there's a bait, there's a hook. There's an enticement. Out of control lust, out of control passion, an old English word that is translated in the King James, concupiscence. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we are to keep our vessels pure. We are to not engage in the lust of concupiscence. This culture, this world in which we live, I I don't even want to talk about some of the things that are making the number one and the top ten on the charts. Songs, videos, the VMA Awards. Some of you probably haven't even heard of them. I didn't even know about them until this week, and now I'm sad I even know about them. But the things that are now mainstream, that are getting the top charts in the entertainment music industry, debauchery, the celebration of some of the worst kinds of evil, and people are drawn away and enticed. And there's a bait, there's a lure, and there's a hook that is deadly. We must identify this desire that is out of control, This lure, this bait, we must be discerning so that we are not enticed, deceived. We must consider the consequences. Verse 15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This lust, this desire, this drawing away, this enticing results in disobedience. Now the will is fully engaged. Sin has been conceived. We talk about conception with pregnancy. Life begins at conception. There is a human being with a soul, a human being made in the image of God at the moment of conception. We see that analogy even here. Sin has conceived. There is a conforming now of the will. The action has gone forth. The Habit has started. The participation is there, however you want to describe it. This is the taking of the bait, the going for the lure, the falling into the trap. It's the following through of the act. And then in verse 15, we see death. Death. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We know that there is a spiritual death 
for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So death comes by sin. So when Adam and Eve sinned and we in Adam sinned, so we are sinners by nature and by choice. So therefore there is a spiritual death for all of us as sinners And the only way to be saved from that spiritual death, to be rescued, to be redeemed from that spiritual death is to repent of one's sins and to place one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, his resurrection. That's the salvation from spiritual death. But there is in the believer's life sin. There is this sanctification process that we are in and we're all at different levels and we are thankful for God's work in our life and we know that God is at work within us to will and to do of his good pleasure but we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and in this sanctification process we sin we fail we give in to the lust we're drawn away we're enticed and there is then a death in the believer's life remember James is writing primarily to believers, brethren, Jewish brethren, but also believing brethren. Okay, Some of the brethren are unsaved Jews who are there in the, the midst, but primarily he's writing to saved Jews. By the inspiration, the preservation of God's word, we have the book of James in holy writ for us today. The application is to us as believers. Sin has a deathly effect in the believer's life. The death of fellowship with our Savior, a brokenness of fellowship with our Savior, a loss of spiritual confidence, a loss of joy, a disappointment that we have failed our Savior. But we have the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, we are walking in the light, but sometimes we get in the shadows. We get in the place where the light is not as bright on our lives as it should be. There is a death in the sense, even if I can go this far, as we would go to James 5 later and 1 John 5, there is a sin unto death for a believer. It's a hard thing to talk about. It's a sobering thought, but there can be a point in time where God says, for a believer that I must take you home because of the way you are living. Sometimes it's a direct consequence of a direct sinful act. A believer who drives drunk and wraps his car around a telephone pole and is taken in death, that believer still goes to heaven as a genuine believer. But there is a direct consequence of that sinful act. There can be a sin unto death for a believer. So there can be that aspect. For the unsaved, sin is just another empty attempt at satisfaction. And sadly, for the unsaved, it can be a hardening of the heart. Even a judicial hardening that God responds to the hardening of man's heart with a judicial hardening And only God knows, and that's God's sovereign plan. But as an unbeliever, if you are here today having not trusted Christ as your Savior, sin produces a hardening. Sin can be another 
step away from the Lord, another opportunity that you pass up to receive Christ as your Savior, to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And for the unbeliever, sin produces the ultimate spiritual death of separation from God in eternity, for eternity in a place called hell. The great white throne judgment, those who are not found in the Lamb's book of life are cast into the lake of fire. That's the deadly effects of sin. We must consider the consequences of our sin. Sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. Consider the consequences. Also, we must consider God's goodness. We must consider God's goodness. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I skipped over verse 16. Sorry about that. In verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. So he's saying, be aware of sin. Know the effects of sin. Consider the consequences. See sin the way God sees it. Do not err, my beloved brethren. But then he appeals to the goodness of God. He says, not just consider God's judgment, the consequences of sin, but consider God's goodness. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God only gives good gifts. So in the moment of temptation, when we are tempted to disobey, we're tempted to follow the lust of our heart, we're tempted to be enticed, drawn away, look at that lure and Look at that bait and consider taking it like Achan in Joshua 7 and verse 21. He says, I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them and behold, they are hid in the earth. When we are tempted like Achan or like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, Satan Lays out the temptation. He baits the hook. He sets the lure. And he questions God. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God hath withhold, has withheld something good from you. He's not a good God. That's the temptation that's even in the world today. That's the same lie that Satan tells. And we forget that God is a good God. And we are lured away. The hook is, 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 is baited. And we are enticed and drawn away by our own lusts. Because we don't consider God's judgment. And because we don't consider God's goodness. And we listen to the lie of even Satan himself through that worldly pleasure. That lust the flesh. That lust the eyes. The pride of life through the devil and his dominions. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. They forgot God's goodness. In the garden, in a perfect garden. They didn't have those little burrs that get on your clothes, and you have to dig them out of your dog's paws. They didn't have poison ivy. They didn't have to dig in the dirt and all of the sweat that would come with the toil. Yes, they had to 
tend the garden. They had to have dominion. But it was without pain, without suffering, without death. They had a beautiful, perfect garden. And they forgot all of that goodness of God. They forgot that he was a good gift, that he was a, a good giver, and he only gives good gifts. He's a holy giver and only gives good gifts. And as a matter of fact, James makes reference to the Father of lights. He is the creator of all the lights of the universe, the star, the stars, the sun, the moon. He's the Father of lights. He even appeals to the heavenly bodies that bring lights. He's the creator God. He's a good God. He blesses us with so much. And like Achan, like Adam and Eve, when temptation comes, we can be tempted to forget God's goodness. They just won the victory in Jericho. They just entered into the promised land. The conquest was the Lord's. They marched around the city. There were no casualties on the Israel side. They had defeated, conquered Jericho by the mighty hand of God and Achan looked away from God's goodness and went after what God said he could not have. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We'll have to conclude here for sake of time. But in the battle against temptation, we must consider God's goodness. Look at all that God has blessed us with. Exceeding precious promises, joint heirs, partakers of the divine nature. We don't need the slop of this world. We don't need the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All those passing pleasures, 1 John describes as lust thereof. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. When we're faced with temptation, look at the will of God. Look at the goodness of God. Remember, he gives good gifts. Young people who lose their virginity and suffer all the consequences of sexual sins because they refuse to believe the goodness of God regarding morality. We could go on and on with the examples of sins that we reject God's goodness. We don't see the judgment. We don't see the consequences. And we ignore the fact that God is good, that he is gracious. He's the father of lights. And there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning, He's not a God that's like shadows that constantly morph and change and go and come and change. He's not like that. He's always a good God. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And we forget that in the midst of temptation. And we think that we can enjoy the passing pleasures of sin without consequence. But when we are enticed and drawn away, and lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin is finished, bringeth forth death. So in this battle with temptation, let us remember the judgment of God, the consequences, but also let's remember the goodness of God. That he doesn't change, that he doesn't say, well, that person, and sometimes this is what we do, right? 
We say, well, that person seems to have gotten away with their sin. They, they call themselves a Christian. They seem to be getting away with it. So God must love them and God must not treat them the same as he treats me. Because it seems like every time I get involved in sin, boy, I get, I get nailed. They seem to get away with it. Sometimes we get like that, don't we? And then we begin to become distrusting and accusatory of God and his goodness. And we act like God is showing favors. And James is even warning us about that. He's a good God. He's a holy God. There's no variableness. Neither shadow of turning. God is working in that person's life and dealing with that person. If they're a true believer, they are going to be dealt with by God. Sometimes we see that with the unsaved. and We think they're getting away with it all. And we're reminded like the psalmist in Psalm 73. When he went into the house of the Lord, then he saw their end. And he was reminded of the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God. So in our battle with temptation, when we consider the consequences, consider God's judgment and consider God's goodness and have victory even this week and throughout our lives by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Giving us the truth, sending your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, sometimes we are defeated in the battle with temptation and Lord, as believers, we kick ourselves and we get down and we get discouraged. But help us, Lord, to confess our sins and to forsake them. And know, Lord, again, remind ourselves of your forgiveness and come back to you and receive your mercy and your grace. And, Lord, help us to have victory. Help us in the battle with temptation to not be drawn away, to not be enticed. But, Lord, to be obedient to remember your goodness, to remember, yes, the judgment, the consequences, but remember your goodness, that you are a good God, that you love us and want us to have victory and want us to be faithful and to enjoy the reward and the honor that comes with that and the joy of obedience and faithful living. And Lord, I pray that you do your work even now in our hearts as we conclude this service. In Jesus' name we pray.